a time management expert was speaking to a group of business school students. And at the beginning of the class, he took out a one-gallon wide-mouthed jar and set it on the table at the front of the classroom. And then he took out about a dozen fist-sized rocks and set them on the table next to the jar. And then one by one, he began taking these rocks and putting them inside of this jar until he couldn't fit any more. And then he said, class, is the jar full? And they said, yes. And he said, ah. And then he reached under the table and he grabbed a bucket of gravel. And then he poured the gravel into the jar and he shook the jar so the gravel went down and settled into the jar and all the cracks and crevices. And then he said, okay, class, is the jar full? They were starting to learn, so they said, probably not. He said, very good. And then he took a bucket of sand out and he poured the sand into this jar and the sand filled even more of the cracks and crevices and the sand was in there along with the gravel and the rocks and he said, okay, is the jar full? And they said, no. And he said, you're right. And then he took a pitcher of water and he poured that water into the jar until he couldn't pour anymore. And then he said, okay, class, what was the point of the illustration? And one eager beaver raised her hand and said, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit more into it. <laughs> and he said, no, that's not the point. The point is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. Stephen Covey uses that illustration in a book called First Things First. And in the book, he asks this question. What is the one activity that you know, if you did superbly well and consistently, would have significant positive results in your personal life? What is the one thing that if you did it well and did it consistently, it would have the biggest impact on your life? In other words, what is the biggest rock? It's a great question, worth pondering in many different areas of our lives. Let me ask you, when it comes to your spiritual life, what is the biggest rock? What is the, the one thing spiritually that if you do it consistently, if you value it, it will make the biggest difference in your life in a positive way? What is it? And when I ask that question, many different answers bubble up in our minds. For some of you, perhaps, your first impulse was to say, well, it's reading the Bible, right? Reading the Bible, that's the one thing. Other people maybe thought it's going to church consistently, that if you do that consistently, it'll make a big difference. Perhaps others thought, well, it's really generosity. If you're, if you're generous with your, your money and your resources, and still others thought, no, it's community, it's relationships. It's so vital to the Christian life. Maybe others thought, no, 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 it's about your prayer life. Having a deep prayer life is the one thing. Or serving. Maybe some of you say, no, serving is the thing. Or others said, no, it's love. I mean, after all, Jesus said that was important, right? So loving one another. What is 
the biggest rock? What's the one thing? Now, you could argue, you could make an argument for all of those things I mentioned to be the one thing, and they're all important. But is there one thing spiritually that is more important than any of those? In the text we're going to look at today in the New Testament, Jesus identifies the one thing. He tells us the biggest rock. And it is so critically important that we hear and that we live in light of what he says. Because here's the truth. We can miss it. What we're going to talk about today, this one thing, we can miss it. You can be in church your whole life and you can miss it. You can even read the Bible and miss the one thing. You can do all the right things and still miss it. So what is it? What is that big rock and what difference does it make for you and for me today? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 10. For a little context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, the text tells us. And he's going to the cross. He's eventually going to be rejected and killed. And on his way there, Luke, who's writing this account, he gives us several different stories and several different blocks of teaching from Jesus. And the focus of all of it, Luke 9 and 10, it's on being a disciple. It's on what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him. And when Jesus is almost to Jerusalem, he takes a slight detour. Let's pick up the story in verse 48, 38 rather, of Luke chapter 10. We read this, while they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, this village was the village of Bethany. It's one and a half miles east of Jerusalem. And almost all commentators agree this was a detour. This was not on Jesus' exact route. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did he turn aside and go to Bethany? Well, it seems from the text that he went to see this family, Martha and Lazarus and Mary. This is a family that pops up over and over again in the Gospels. We know that Jesus loves this family. And so Jesus, he goes to this home in Bethany, and Martha opens her home to him. Says, come on in. And then we read about another family member. Look at the next verse. Says, she had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Now, th this phrase sat at the Lord's feet is so significant because this is a technical term for being a disciple. A rabbi would have his followers, his disciples, sit at his feet and he would teach them. We read in Acts 22.3 that Paul was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. And that doesn't mean that Paul spent his days literally at the feet physically of this man. It means that Gamaliel brought him up in the way of Judaism. He discipled him. And what's surprising about this, which would have been surprising in the first century and even to some degree is surprising now, is that Mary is a woman. It was extremely rare for a rabbi to take a, a woman as a disciple, and yet Jesus 
does it. And not only does Jesus allow her to assume the posture of a disciple listening and learning from him, he actually, as we're going to see, he protects her place as a disciple. And he affirms what she's doing. This is so significant. Now, what was she doing at his feet? Well, the text says that she was listening to what he said. That word for listening, it implies giving constant attention. You could also translate it, she kept listening. Her eyes are locked on Jesus, and she's listening, and she's learning. And then we have a contrast with someone else in the story. Look at the next verse. It says, but Martha was distracted by her many tasks. That word for distracted, it means to become busy or overburdened. It, it literally has the, the connotation of getting dragged or pulled away. Some of us feel like that right now, that life is pulling us in all these different directions. Now, what was dragging Martha away? What was pulling her away? Well, the text says her many tasks, her many tasks. What did that mean? Well, you know, Jesus, he, he likely came with a group of people to Martha's home. Like, hey, surprise, I'm here and I've got 12 of my best friends and we're going to all hang out and stay in your home. And so Martha is most likely, she's cooking, she's cleaning, she's preparing places for them to stay. She's incredibly busy. But Martha isn't just busy on the outside. Something's happening on the inside with Martha. And we read about it in the next verse. She came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Martha is not just distracted. She's irritated at Jesus. Lord, don't you care? Sounds a little bit like some of my prayers at times when I get really whiny with God. God, don't you care? Tell her to give me a hand, Martha says. Here I am doing all this while she just sits there. And Jesus responds. Look at what he says. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Now we have to stop here because in Semitic language, when you doubled a word, it magnified that word or intensified it. Specifically, when you doubled someone's name, oftentimes it's communicating strong emotion, usually compassion. In the Old Testament, David, when Absalom dies, David, he says, oh, Absalom, Absalom. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he knows he's about to be rejected, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus on the cross, he says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? So what does it mean when Jesus says, Martha, Martha? It means that Jesus has deep compassion for Martha. And we need to see that, that Jesus isn't coldly rebuking Martha. No, he has deep compassion for her. And in his compassion, he invites her to a new perspective. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, in this story, you have two different people who approach Jesus in two different ways. I mean, clearly, there's a contrast 
between Mary and Martha. We understand this. But, but what is the difference between the two? What is the difference? Some have said throughout history that the difference is a spiritual approach to life versus a secular approach. That, that, that Mary is spiritual and Martha represents all the secular people and the secular jobs of this life. This interpretation was used in the Middle Ages to make people leave their secular jobs and to go into ministry. But that's not what this story is teaching. That's not what this is about. If anything, Martha represents somebody in full-time ministry because she's doing all this stuff for Jesus, right? So the, the difference isn't Mary is spiritual and Martha's secular. That's not it. Now, other people have said, well, the, the difference is Mary has a contemplative life and Martha has an active life. In other words, the difference is sitting versus serving. And in my view, that's overly simplistic. I think there's some truth in that, but that's not quite what this passage is teaching. If you notice, Jesus does not critique Martha for serving. He critiques Martha for being worried and upset. Jesus is not down on serving. I mean, if you read the teachings of Jesus, Jesus even said, I came to serve. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So Jesus is not down on serving. And Mary, in this story, she had been serving. Because verse 40, Martha says, don't you care that she left me? In other words, Mary was serving at some point. So, so this is not a story of there's one person who just serves all the time and then one person who just has quiet times with Jesus all the time and that person is the right person. That's not what this story is, is teaching. So what is the difference between Mary and Martha? I think what this text is saying is the fundamental difference with Mary and Martha, the difference between the two has to do with priorities. With priorities. I want you to look at verse 41. Jesus, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. You see, the contrast in these verses, it's not sitting verse serving, spiritual, psychic. the contrast is many things versus one. And to strengthen that, this, this word for worried, which might be translated as anxious in your Bible, that Martha was worried, she was anxious. That word in Greek is the word merinmeo, merinmeo. But it comes from a word, the root of that word is merimna. And merimna means to be divided. It means to be pulled in different directions. And I think Jesus is intentionally using that word to say, Martha, you are anxious and worried, and it's dividing you in all these different directions. You have all of these priorities, Martha, but one thing is needed, only one. In other words, Martha, you think you need all these other things. You don't. 
You need one thing. Now, what is the one thing? I mean, that's the most important question we could ask when we read this story. So what is the one thing? Jesus says only one thing is needed. Well, whatever the one thing is, it's expressed in sitting at Jesus's feet and listening to him because that's what Mary was doing. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the one thing. So let me just boil it down to a simple phrase. I think this text is is showing us to not overcomplicate it. The one thing, the one thing is knowing Jesus. Not knowing about Jesus, but knowing Jesus. Mary made knowing Jesus the supreme priority of her life. And that's the difference between the two. Martha's many priorities versus Mary's priority on knowing Jesus above all else. Now, for for us today, for you and for me, what what do we take from this? Well, the, the, the story is not that complex, but it's incredibly difficult. Because the invitation, the challenge for you and for me from this story, it's this. It's to make knowing Jesus the supreme priority of your life. That is what this text is inviting you and me to do. Make knowing Jesus the supreme priority of your life. I I, I don't know about you. (laughs) I don't know how that lands for you. I feel like I'm a far ways from that. I mean, this is so much easier said than done, isn't it? How many in the room feel like, you know what, I've done that. I, yeah, knowing Jesus is the supreme priority of my, this is so difficult, isn't it? And part of the reason why we read a story like this and it just seems unrealistic is because there's so many other things that are competing in our lives and in our hearts with this priority. And so what I want to do to to help us is I want to look at three reasons why we struggle to do this. Again, the text is, it's inviting us to make knowing Jesus the supreme priority. Three reasons why we don't. Number one, we fill our lives with distractions and self-imposed demands. We fill our lives with distractions and self-imposed demands. Demands. Our lives are incredibly busy. And much of it is self-inflicted, isn't it? You know, we're so busy, but it's, it's a lot of things that we opt into, and then we complain about it. I know that I do that at times. Oh, I'm just so busy. And I've chosen the things that I and my family is involved in. And, and many of us, we approach our spiritual life the same way, that we assume that God wants us to do anything and everything, and we fill our lives with all this stuff. In this story, Jesus never asked Martha to do all of those things that she was doing. She thought that he wanted her to, but Jesus never asked her. And, And by the way, the things she was doing were good things. They weren't bad It's not like she was living in sin and all. She was doing good things, but they prevented her from prioritizing the one thing that mattered most 
In her poem, Fire, Judy Brown says this, and I think this is so insightful spiritually. She says, what makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed in too tight can douse the flames. Spiritually, it is almost impossible to prioritize knowing Jesus without a breathing space, without room in your life and in your soul to just breathe. Why? Because you you can't sit at his feet. There's no time. There's no margin. Now, what was driving Martha to do her many tasks? Because it's very simplistic for me to be up here today and say, you know, we just all need to simplify our lives. And I don't think that's the answer, necessarily. What was driving Martha? In other words, what what in Martha's heart and life was causing her to fill her life with all of these tasks? Well, it's a lot of the same stuff that drives us to overcrowd our lives. Perfectionism, comparing with other people. We have some standard in our heads for what it means to thrive socially or spiritually or what and so we fill our lives with this stuff and we assume that that's God's standard for us too I remember years ago when I was at Pine Cove I was a young leader at this nonprofit in Texas and I was struggling with feeling like I was good enough and I was meeting with a mentor and counselor of mine and I remember he asked me this he said Matt how good do you have to do in order to do a good job? I thought that's kind of a weird question. But then it got weirder because he said, I want you to show me. I said, what do you mean? He said, show me with your hand how good do you have to do to do a good job? And I remember I you know, put my hand up somewhere. And he said, how good does someone else in your role How good does someone else in your organization that you're in, how good do they have to do in order to do a good job? And I instinctively lowered my hand. It was so illuminating for me because what I realized was my standard for other people, which was fair and reasonable, that was not the standard I had for myself. That somewhere I learned that I had to be perfect in order to do a good job, and it was killing me. Let me ask you, how good do you have to do spiritually to do a good job? How does God answer the question? For many of us, the answer from God is, you gotta do just a little bit more. You gotta do just a little bit better than you currently are doing, wherever we are. And when we live with that kind of voice, that influence, we will continually overcrowd our lives with distractions and self-imposed demands. So that is, that's one thing that gets in the way of us prioritizing knowing Jesus. The second thing is this. We value doing for God more than being with God. We, many of us, we, we value doing for God more than being with God. We we come from a church stream, Protestant evangelicalism, which, you know, you've got the Eastern Church and the Western Church, and then the Western Church, you've got the Catholic side, and then you've got Protestant side, and there's all of these different streams. But the stream 
to which we belong and which many of us have grown up in is Protestant evangelicalism. And there are amazing and valuable and wonderful things about that church stream and tradition. There's an emphasis on salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's an emphasis on scripture. But one of the the, the negative and potentially dangerous things about the church stream which we belong to is there is a hyper emphasis on doing for God over being with God. And this isn't true in all churches, but in many churches, there is a higher emphasis on doing for God than on being with God. We, we, we've, we put very little stock into our inner life with God. We put a lot more focus on our outer activity for him. And, and, and this comes out of a theology. It, it's, it, it comes out of a view of God that many of us, we believe, let's be honest, we believe that God values what we do for him more than being with him, just like Martha. I mean, the reason why Martha is irritated at Jesus, and I can relate, the reason why she's irritated is because she thinks that she's doing all these things that God wants her to do. But Jesus, he says, Martha, I never wanted a seven-course meal. What I wanted was this. Relationship with you. And, and here's the sobering reality, and I think we need this warning. I know I do. You and I, we can be doing great things for Jesus and disconnected from Jesus. That ought to scare us a little bit. That it's possible, listen, Jesus, he, he says there are people who will cast out demons and prophesy and do miracles. Think about that, miracles in the name of Jesus. And they will get to some point in their journey and Jesus will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, what does Jesus mean? Doesn't he know everybody? Doesn't he know the hairs on your head? What Jesus means is, I never knew you in a relational sense. We had no connection, no relationship. And that warning, it's, it's not just for non-Christians. It's for, it's for us, too. It's, it's for believers. I mean, John, who writes, we think, Revelation, and the letter to Ephesus, which Jesus is speaking to this church in the first century, to the church at Ephesus, says, I commend you for all of your hard work, your perseverance, your discernment of the truth. I mean, you've done amazing things. But this I have against you. You have forsaken your first love. What was their first love? It was Jesus not doing for Jesus, Jesus himself. And we can do the same thing. Part of what this text is doing, and this story is just explosive, if we let it be. Part of what this text is doing is it's confronting you and I in our works-based approach to the Christian life. It's this, and there's, there's something that matters more. Service is important. But doing cannot, should not, should never replace being with Jesus, being connected to him. And, and again, 
Martha, she was in the same house as Jesus. You know, proximity to Jesus doesn't mean intimacy with him. We can be in church and we can be around God and, and be disconnected. And Jesus, you know, says to her, and, and what God says to us is, I don't want your resume. I want you. You are what I want. So the second reason that we struggle to prioritize knowing Jesus is that we value doing for God more than being with God. And then the third reason, this is why many of us struggle in this area, is we believe that we already know all there is to know. When I say make knowing Jesus the supreme priority of your life, many of us, we say, check, I know Jesus. I mean, Matt, I've been in church for years, maybe decades. I read the Bible. I know the Old Testament. Even back in Sunday school with the felt board, I know the whole story. You know, I know it. But knowing intellectually is not the same thing as knowing experientially. All of us in this room today, we know not to touch a hot stove. But some of us know not to touch a hot stove because we've done it. See, the, the, the kind of knowing that Mary prioritized here, it's not intellectual. It's experiential and relational. It's what Carl Jung gets at when he was asked once, do you believe in God? And in Carl Jung, he replies, he says, I don't believe in God. I know God. I know God. And when it comes to knowing God for you and for me, we will spend our lifetime knowing God and we will never get to the bottom. In my first year of marriage as a newlywed, I was scared because I had an overly idealized view of marriage and it was hard. And a lot of it was based on my own stuff. I mean, with codependency and other issues and, and it, it was hard and I was, and I was scared about that. Like, this is so difficult, you know, for me. And, and so I went to see a counselor. We went to see a counselor and and I remember in that time with the counselor, which was so important and, and helpful, the counselor, he said to, to me, he said, now how long have y'all been married? And I said, seven months, which, which you know you're talking to a newlywed when they name the number of months. We're like, yeah, seven months. And I remember he said to me, he said, do you know her? Do you know your wife? And I mean, what do you say to that? I remember being like, yeah, I mean, I married her. Yeah, I know, I know, I know her. And he said to me, he said, Matt, he said, you're, you're like in a, you're in a boat off the coast of South Carolina and you're coming in uh, to the shore and you can see a little bit of the landscape and there's some mountains over here and there's a valley over here and the, some, some trees in this direction. You can see all that. He said, Matt, your wife is North America. That's how little you know, pat, pat, <laughs> of your wife. And his point was, don't you stop. Don't stop pursuing, knowing, and, and again, not just knowing about, but knowing her. Now, if people 
are that vast and rich and deep and extensive. If people, and all of us are, how much more so is God? See, we will spend our lives trying to know God. And again, we'll never get to the bottom. We're going to spend eternity with Jesus, and we're never going to get to the end. You're never going to get to a point where you say, I know all there is to know. And so, gosh, for us, the great invitation, the great calling on your life, on my life, is to know Jesus more. I remember somebody said this years ago, and I I can't remember who said it, but the quote stuck with me. And the quote was simply this, that God reserves the greatest depths of his heart for those who seek him over time. God reserves the greatest depths of his heart for those who seek him over time. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. For me, that's what I want. To know God. To, at the end of my life, say, I know, I know God. I know the depths of his heart. So again, the invitation for you and for me, in spite of these challenges and obstacles and false beliefs that we have, the invitation is make knowing Jesus the supreme priority of your life. Now, just to to give us handles on that, I want to talk about one specific practice I want to encourage all of us to consider for this week, because that's a big idea. How do we bring it down and what do you do with it today? Glenn Packiam has a great quote. Glenn Packiam, he says this. He says, your practices enshrine your priorities. Your practices enshrine your priorities. In other words, whatever you prioritize, it gets played out in what you do. And if you want to challenge, if you want to change your your priorities, you have to address your, your practices, Because your practices, whether it's saving money or spending time with your kids or your wife, whatever your practices are, they demonstrate and cultivate your priorities. So in that that spirit, I want to encourage you with one specific practice to take and to do this week. And it's simply this. It's make a regular practice of sitting with Jesus Make a regular practice. And what, what do I mean when I say sitting with Jesus? Like Mary, a time of being present with Jesus and listening to him through scripture and through prayer. Now, why do I say sitting with Jesus? I use that phrase because it challenges the way that some of us think about our time with God, our quiet time. Because some of us, we think about our time with God as a time to read the Bible and to pray for these different people on my list, maybe to journal, but we approach it like a task, like it's something to do. We check it off the list, and if we don't do it, if you miss your quiet time for two days in a row, you feel terribly guilty. You know, we we approach it like a task, and, and just by thinking about it as sitting with Jesus... You and I, we, we are recognizing that this time is about relationship. It's about a time to be present to Jesus in the same way he is present to you and to, to listen to him. The, the goal is not to get through a certain number of chapters. 
It's to, it's to be with and it's to learn from Jesus. So to help us understand what that might look like in your life, this helped me years ago. Rich Velotis, he has several tips on establishing a life of prayer. He says this, he says, number one, enjoy the simple presence of God in silence without the need to offer words. Number two, listen for God's word to me in scripture for this particular moment. And number three, thoughtfully express to God the thoughts and feelings of my mind and heart. For some of us, when we think, I don't know what to do when I sit with Jesus, what does that mean? These three things, they help us enjoy the presence of God without the need to offer words, listen to what God's saying to me in scripture, and then thoughtfully express, God, here's what's on my mind and and here's what's on my heart. And this is not a formula, you know, these are, these are tips, it's a, it's a framework to help guide us. And, and again, I, I just can't emphasize this enough. When you and I spend time with God, it's not about doing it right. It's not about technique. It's about relationship. It's about you showing up with your authentic, messy, distracted, imperfect self. I say, Jesus, here I am. And when we do that, when you and I make a practice of that, it changes us. And the change sometimes is imperceptible. You will spend times, weeks, months, years maybe, where you're like, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of this. And you talk to someone else, you're like, man, God is saying so much to me right now. It's like I open my Bible and God is just speaking directly to me. And you're like, awesome. Because you don't have that experience. But as you prioritize this through practicing it, it changes you. You're becoming a different person. So where are you today? And where, where might God be inviting you to take a step to, to practice sitting with Jesus? Some of you today, you, you do this, and you've been doing this for a long time, and today is just a reminder. You know, this isn't new. So, some of you in the room today, for you, you you've made a, a habit of, of spending time with God, but that's stopped, and maybe you've discontinued it. Maybe you're in the room, and you've never even done it. And God is inviting you today to begin for five minutes or 10 minutes just to sit with Jesus. And there's others in the room, maybe you've slid into thinking about your time with God more as, more as a task to do. And today the shift for you is, no, 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 this is about a person, Jesus. It's about Jesus and it's about sitting with him, experiencing him where are you today? You know, where might God be inviting you to take a step? I know for me, what, what we're talking about today, I have been doing for the past few years, but, but in the last six months, I've, I have not prioritized this. And I have struggled to, to, to make this a priority for me. What I'm talking about today, and I, I felt this week, you know, God inviting me to say, no, Matt, you need to value this more than you are. Where are you? And what might that look like to take a step? And say, I want to be like Mary. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Every time Mary is mentioned in the gospel, she's at the feet of Jesus. Every time. Here in John 11, when Lazarus dies, it says that Mary, she fell at Jesus' feet. And then in John chapter 12, when Mary comes in and she takes a pint of perfume and pours it, on his feet. 
Most scholars believe that was Mary. I believe that was Mary. She pours it on his feet, wipes his feet with her tears. And when she does that in John 12, Jesus, he says, she's preparing my body for, for burial. Because Jesus was going to the cross and he says, this woman, Mary, she is, she's preparing my body for burial. Now, how did Mary know that Jesus was going to die? Because in John chapter 12, none of the other disciples knew, even though Jesus kept telling them they could not get it through their thick heads that he was going to the cross. But Mary, she knew. She's the first one to say, I know that he's about to die. And he is worth everything. He is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure. And I'm going to pour all I've got at his feet. She knew. How did Mary know? It's because she listened to him. She knew him because she spent time at his feet. That's where you could find Mary, at the feet of Jesus. May that be true of you and and of me, that that's where we're found, at the feet of Jesus, listening, learning from him, because that is the big rock. That is the one thing. It makes the biggest difference. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this story. And God, it is so convicting and challenging. And I, I, I pray, God, that you would help all of us to know what, what it looks like to make knowing Jesus the supreme priority of our lives. Help us, God, to navigate the different challenges and distractions that come. Thank you, God, that there's no perfect standard Lord, what you want is us, and you want a relationship, and so all of us, we can move towards that by your grace. Jesus, we do thank you that you are the pearl of great price and that you are the one who came to seek and to save those who are lost, us included, and God, that you're interested in more than just our salvation, but in us and in a relationship. God, we're so grateful. And so we just respond now out of who we are and our hearts, and we just say, thank you. And we say, Lord, as we leave this place, even we just say, God, we need you. Jesus, we need you. So would you meet us in our need and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.